Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Cronus Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We have another awesome triple header for you today. We're going to kick things off with the groundbreaking Knights of X number four, before finding ourselves over in Marauders number four, which continues to unfold an incredible saga for a number of highly underutilized and previously underrepresented characters, before finding the team over in the pages of Moon Knight number 13. Kicking things off is an incredibly excited discussion about Knights of X. I actually got so excited I introduced the segment wrong. It's just such a groundbreaking issue that's so important in so many ways, and we hope you guys enjoy the coverage. And don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see, so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on X is for Podcast on Twitter, and check us out over at xisforpodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to Otherworld. The Knights have been called together to talk about the best thing that has happened to Rachel or Betsy in some time, and that is really cool further development. I'm just too excited to even hide it. We are here to talk about Knights of X number four, The Seed of Self, written by Teeny Howard, with art by Bob Quinn. Now that's lines and pencils. Bob has talked about how in his process, he sees inking as a form of his pencil work. So like he likes to do the complete both parts of the equation. We have brilliant color work by Eric Arseniego, who is really taking the Krakoan color line to the new level. We have VC Zariana Mar, who is an openly queer creator, and I'm sure this must have been an epic day for Ariana. I also see that we have Yannick Paquette and Alejandro Sanchez on cover. Love the cover. Would have really loved a Bob Quinn cover on this one because of the moment in it, but did we do names yet? No, no. Did I just get way too overexcited about this book? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have been dying to talk about this since Wednesday, guys. That's how excited I'm like, did we did we do names? <laughs> did we? Did I even say my name? Did I say my name? All right. Well, I'm Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. God, I'm just so excited. Also excited is me, and I'm Jake. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O H Mega Sentinel. And I'm T K. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate X Gray X. I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel W E I L and at Asleep the Wheel dot com. And I'm Joe. And you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's B E A K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike Gambit, who still has not survived anything, <laughs> and whose body we seem to have lost. And possibly unlike our credits on this issue, I am genuinely sorry. I've never done that in You better 300... leave it just like this. <laughs> yeah, I have not ever done that in 363 episodes of this show. This is the level of excitement. It's the level of excitement. We are, of course, then here to discuss discuss Knights of X number four and the complex relationship I have had with Teeny Howard and initially Marcus Toe's beautiful, complete tapestry was shaped in part by Josh, who I'm so glad you're here today for this recording because Josh, one of the things that I remember was I had given up on Excalibur in the early 20s, I guess, like just a little bit after uh, Ten of Swords. And you had just done this big reread and you were like, but no, 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 there's 675 Easter 
Easter eggs and let me list them. And I, you know, this Jonah was your first Excalibur. Jake, you know, this era of Knights of X was your jumping on point. I would just love to get where everyone is before we get to the stuff. I'm a big fan of Teeny's work. I think that especially in Excalibur, it reads better in trade. It reads better kind of in reread when you can do it all at once than it does individual issues carrying month to month. I think that she's gotten a little better at that since when it started because she was really doing, she was doing more of a tapestry than we all realized in those first 10 issues, the in-between Hoxpox and Ten of Swords of Excalibur. But, you know, I've been incredibly busy and we had a big move here. And so I'm a little backed up on some of my comics. Getting to sit down and read, I hadn't read Knights of X 3 or 4. So sitting down and reading them back to back and together just makes it, the more of it you read together, I think the better. I feel like I've been reading a lot of bad comics. (laughs) I've been reading a lot of things that I'm just like, ugh such as The Reckoning War, which just finished. Oh my God. And God, then picking up and getting to Knights of X was rejuvenating. The Bob Quinn art, what Teeny's doing with the story, it has some of my favorite little bits of like Teeny poetry. I don't want to say she's the most poetic. Kieran Gillen gets very poetic and purple at times, but she has this bit of poetry to some of her work that I love so much from time to time. And there was a scene at the end of three with Roma, and Saturnine kind of reassuring Shogo, like dealing with Shogo after the death of Gambit, that just, yeah, it, this, this has been, these two issues have been some of the tops of like why I love Teeny and love Teeny on this book. So Nico, I was going to correct you because I was going to say that part of my enthusiasm for Excalibur is because of Jake, who has been a long-term Excalibur fan, but I realized that you meant jumping on point for covering the stories with us. Falling in love with Excalibur kind of conceptually started with my partner, Jake, who is in this room with us. Who? 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 Excalibur has always seemed like one of those things that I felt like as a comic books fan that was starting in the 90s, it was like always the book that I didn't get. And then the the post-Morrison Excalibur just was weird. They were forging the sword of mutant hope. What the fuck? <laughs> and you know, that tying into all the Magneto stuff and then that leading into the one, I didn't get the onboarding that I wish I had. And having a partner who was much more familiar with Excalibur really gave me an appreciation for it that has served me well, but I didn't really start to all see it come together until Teeny Howard's Excalibur started. Then I started to see the ways in which she was really making the next chapter in this story that goes all the way back to early Claremont. And I felt like that really huge run of Excalibur, that was doing so much work to bridge gaps and tie loose ends and start afresh. And yo, yo, night- yo, we got an editor's box telling us to go back and check out an uncanny X-Men issue from the fucking 80s. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You that know, this classic. This is such a rooted thing, but what impresses me is that it really feels like this all this work that's been done and is being done is truly to move these characters forward and to change them for the better. And I don't think that that could be any better represented than this character 
kiss, this thing that comics fans have been speculating about and thinking about and waiting for for years, that has been so important to so many decades, that has been so important to so many people. And, you know, I think I really, at this point, I was accepting that it was just going to be headcanon slash subtext slash it just wouldn't be something that could happen in this really bright, shining, beautiful way. And lo and behold, full page drawn by Bob Quinn, probably, probably the person I would have picked if I had my choice. Absolutely in the top three. Rendered beautifully in every way. I just, I'm so taken aback by the work that has been done in this series, this issue. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the, this is, this, this, this series as a whole has really, it's picked up some really interesting pieces that are just, there's picked up on some threads that are just so old and, and so woven deeply into the X-Men tapestry. I think the whole pursuit of the Siege Perilous as the grail of mutant kind is is such a cool story and really is a development on this thing that's been sort of placed throughout the history of the X-Men as we've seen it on the page but never really fully developed into like how does this integrate why is this thing part of the X-Men why is this thing part of mutant destiny and this is the story that's kind of giving us that answer subtextually queer coded women are a huge part of X-Men especially Claremont's 70s and 80s work and getting to see two of his most prominent created characters share this moment get to like on the page have their sexuality have their love have their attraction have it shown is groundbreaking i mean i mean it shouldn't be because it's 2022 but these are the characters for whom this stuff was always coded and now it gets to be on the page and there's something just heartwarming gratifying we've come a long way baby that's 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 the phrase that i had in my head (laughs) when i saw it we've come a long way baby no I have always over-identified with Rachel Summers as a character. My first issue of X-Men was a classic X-Men when she appeared in the 616 timeline and was pursued by Celine. Yeah, I read that when I was like eight years old and was like, this character reminds me of me. And so getting to see her develop like her spike armor and her very queer identity and then finally get to live it is just, it's, I feel like a part of me is coming out on the page. And, you know, it's not all about me. As a reader, I, I know that I'm not alone in this feeling. I can't think of something more uplifting than seeing this beautiful moment between Rachel and Betsy. And y'all, we are only like five years away from the extremely uncomfortable forced heterosexual relationship with Nightcrawler that Guggenheim put on her. Oh my um, god. Which just, it felt like (laughs) conversion therapy, like on the page, (laughs) even if it wasn't even written that way. And now we have this. I got, I want to just jump in and add too that like, this is a five issue miniseries that in like your elevator pitch is teeny doing a D campaign with some of her favorite queer characters and it's doing the heavy lifting of deep fucking lore on things from 400 issues ago in like seminal parts of claremont's work and completely rewriting and unifying the future history of apocalypse uh into his present incarnation with all of rachel's Ascani stuff and everything from all of those Scott Lobdell Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and Ascani Sun miniseries that like Nico and I have covered in, in past things. There's so much fucking heavy lifting deep dive lore unifying going on here as well. 
Uh, there was a point that somebody made that I think was really important in terms of at least X-Men. I think we're missing some big representation for queer women. You know, we have some really good candidates for on-panel canonical showing queer love for men, and that's great, and I love that, obviously, as a queer man. I, I always love being able to see myself, but we haven't, at least what feels like in this terms of the Krakoan era, really haven't had a forefront showcase of queer women, and seeing this, you know, kiss be a full page dedicated to it, this story of these two characters that have had this interesting relationship that I, I think works really well and I personally found it a little more natural, a little more like, there's definitely subtext there and I really appreciate that this not only, uh, as someone said earlier, it wasn't just subtext we actually got the actual text we actually got canonical evidence we got to see them be queer have this kiss, have it be a big moment have it be celebrated and I really appreciate that representation looks like so many different things to so many different people and being able to see representation uh, queer representation that isn't you know something I specifically identify with but I get to enjoy and I get to love and I get to see appreciated does make me very happy does make me very appreciative of all the hard work that Teeny did to get us to this point there's a lot that goes behind the book that, behind the pages that we are not privy to and the amount of work and campaigning I imagine that Teeny had to do to be able to get permission to do this is absolutely astronomical and insane and I'm so I'm appreciative that Teeny said I I'm going to do this. We stand. I want to touch on something that Josh said that I think Teeny's work, at least for specifically in context of Excalibur, works so much better if you're like, I'm going to dedicate an evening and I'm going to read all of this start to finish. And I think it does help really bridge what Teeny was telling us through the medium of Otherworld with mutants and what that means and what that looks like. I think this story in terms of Knights of X has been so fascinating because, you know, when we saw this title and then we saw the first issue, we were like, oh, this is a D&D campaign. This is just mutants on a medieval fantastical fantasy adventure to get the MacGuffin to get this holy grail of mutant jump. But this story, I feel like, has taken a different direction and a different step from what a traditional D&D campaign and what that might specifically look like, because it is shorter. So we're getting, you know, a different story. And I think that really works in terms of Otherworld, because I think in Otherworld, what you see isn't always the truth. And also, it's just a very different twist on what that storytelling looks like, because nothing is the same in Otherworld world, everything is different. Anything involving Fae and fantastical creatures like that, it's never exactly what it seems. And that's like a hugely pervasive element of this book, that nothing is just one thing. The idea of Betsy and Rachel getting together in so many ways makes sense as the two of them are these naturally transformative, kind of reflective figures. When I say naturally transformative, I mean, you can look at their work and see where their characters progressed and evolved. Sometimes not smoothly, but they're not characters who are suddenly very different. When I look at the cast of Knights of X, Saturnine is a character that there are literally multiple versions of by virtue of who they are as fictional characters outside of the X-Men. Roma, Merlin, Arthur, Mordred. These are multifaceted characters. Kylan has two identities, boy and adult, you know, hair sing warrior man person. I don't know. And we have Bay the Blood Moon, who while we accept her as sort of a mutant, she kind of exists in this other world of what we know mutants to be. Araka, Richter is mutant and magic. Shatterstar is two men in different body configurations. Even Shogo is a dragon and a baby. Megan's definition is she's transformative. 
And now we have The Siege Perilous is two different things. Everything about this book is revealing the layers in a way that can truly only be rewarded by what Josh and Jonah were saying. Extensive reading in a concentrated way. Not that there isn't a monthly benefit, but there's an added benefit. Is the other thing, so The Siege Perilous, it's like a gem, but also a Pop-Tart? <laughs> I have to assume because I could, I like, there's things that, you know, where you're like, you have to do the thing to it. <laughs> I just have to touch the gem, like, cause it looks like frosting. Like, it's got that, like, it's slightly raised. It looks so gaudy. And, like, I could see, like, an evil Chloris Leachman wearing it in a Halloween movie. You know, I could see it happen. So I love it. Also, maybe it's like a walkie talkie. There's a lot of possibilities. It's, it's transformative, but it's definitely a Pop Tart at one point, And Rachel is eating it. And that's delightful. So before we go on to, I guess, away from the kiss, because I understand that if this is a 45 minute segment, probably. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to get everything out of the way before the kiss. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that when we first started seeing or hearing that Mercator was going to come back and be a thing, that he was listed as, you know, one of the Omegas in Hoxpox, and then that there was a whole realm named Mercator as we were getting our definitions in Ten of Swords. I went back and got all of the District X trades and reread. And so I have been waiting for him for these couple of years now, having like reread his story through that. And I, I just love that even though he's been so divorced from these characters and has nothing in it that apparently like he ships Betsy and Rachel so much that he was the one responsible for the rainbow butterflies that we got all around them during the kiss because he was just so happy to see it happen too. It's just been a while since he's seen hot girl on girl action. There is no shortage of like creepy writer stand in characters that would be like that in <laughs> the X universe. No, he's definitely not that guy. He's not. Yeah, he's a good guy. I love him. Yeah. Well, he's on the side of life. Yeah. He's a life affirming mutant. He's a life affirming butterfly transforming mutant. Wait, can we talk about my favorite life hating mutant? Okay, so TK <laughs> made me read this on like on the internet with him. So he live heard me scream. My beautiful mad Jim is crucifying furies. I'm so excited. You guys have to be able to hear that I'm like holding back the screams. Not, not just crucifying. We learned that Mad Jim Jaspers is a kinky bitch because he's put oh, on he's... he's putting them in some uh uh, that's a sandwich cross that's what that is oh, i love him so much oh my god teeny is just getting he's like upper echelon crazy pants in a way that so few characters can really echelon the pants up you know what i mean pants high to god and he really really represents that thing where it's too much like that's why i love miracle man i love these characters that are just so too much and mad jim is so too much and it was perfect it was what i said we didn't get in the first few so happy well and i think that having jamie braddock make this change towards somebody who is a little more like his siblings a little more composed and put together we really saw jamie in the 2000s go i mean 90s too like he just went to some really unpalatable places and it wasn't even like jim jaspers where it was like mad funny it was just weird and gross and a lot of some writer stand and stuff too he always had to be depicted in tidy whities and like drooling. Yeah. Like he's like he's like a diaper baby, and there's just some similarities between the two, but it never works on Jamie. And he is like a weird diaper baby pulling on the red strings that are apparently reality because string theory hate that. 
And I love Monarch. He's like got a little bit of Sinister's vibe to him, but he's coherent and he's just kind of become more of a like, you never know when he might not give a fuck versus Mad Jim, who is giving us a semi-controlled, a chaos that we can focus on as a reader and enjoy in a moment where we see him putting the Furies on crosses, but isn't just like, well, now it's a reality storm or something so crazy that we can't pick out important parts of the issue that need to go forward and it becomes all about Mad Jim. It's a really good lane for him to be in, and I think he really shines under Teeny's pen in that. And I think you were saying earlier, you mentioned uh, something that I really felt when you were talking about like being a, a 90s child and like reading X-Men and how Excalibur just kind of felt like a little out of reach or inaccessible compared to the other ones. And it's funny because going back and reading it, it definitely is to be read more as an adult, but it has this British edge, this farcicalness that makes the comedy feel juvenile. But but there's also grown-up sexiness to it that is not juvenile, that is this very, very British kind of combination. So you can appreciate it, and it, it definitely feels much more for you going back and rereading it as an adult. And yeah, like the Jim Jaspers doing, you know, the sex dungeon crosses on the Furies here definitely tapped into some of some of that as well. He's an interesting contrast to, to someone like Mercator, who is seemingly on an equal or similar power level where Jim Jaspers is he's almost so powerful that the only way of dealing with him is to give him his own slice of the pie of Otherworld Mercator is restrained and withdrawn and playing a long game and is a lot more sparing in the use of his power I really love that take because one of the things I feel like is we don't get enough of that character historically I think he represents a character that we see more on wikis than ever appeared in issue and when you have a character like Mercator, who is so powerful and is so beyond that scope, by using him less, you make him more. And I think because now you're seeing him restrained, we have no idea what he can do. We have no idea the upper echelon of his ability. I think that point really stands to part of you know what we keep saying. Teeny Howard uses these characters sparingly at times in a way that really rewards an all-at-once read. The Megan nose boop is perhaps the most perfect Megan moment of the Krakoan era because that's Megan. She's silly and she's fey and she's love and she's cute and I loved the boop. Well, and you and I talked about that and how it, it also works in the context because that is a silly moment in a head fantasy, in a dream essentially, that is gesturing at something more serious and that is kind of foreshadowing a major plot point. It's There are layers to it and just the single panel is perfect but then when you look at it in the broader context what I said to you was it really reminds me of uh, the Buffy episode Restless where little moments can be silly in and of themselves but then the way they relate to the rest of the episode and the rest of the series has big weight to it I'm amazed by the way Bob is able to play with styles panel to panel page to page in a way that you can feel like this is a fantasy adventure one minute and then like this is really the fate of the Marvel Universe of the X-Universe of people's lives is resting on what happens in this D&D campaign, for lack of a better comparison, but a very good one, actually. I also like, as we keep mentioning, and it's something that we've talked about since the start of Excalibur, that, you know, Teeny's very into D&D and that, you know, there's a, a D&D aspect to, like, the campaign in Otherworld. Um, but the X-Line is now, like, you know, in the hands of probably one of the biggest D&D RPG nuts in comics in Kieran Gillen. I mean, 
a guy who did a 20 issue series dedicated to just the a love letter to the breakdown and construction of role-playing games and designed a fully working role-playing game to actually go along with it just practically a novel of back notes and research and annotation available online for readers to go along with so we've got teeny and kieran in the x office providing what will hopefully be strong connections in terms of what this means to the line as a whole when it joins back up i hope i have so many important vibes for this book that i am so so eager to see happen one of the things that we actually kept saying as a team was that as crazy as it sounds the thing we really didn't need from this book was to be excalibur anymore i maybe would like it if there was some sort of excalibur banner somewhere just because and i mean this with love but newbies to comics struggle to understand voluming in and of itself trying to follow from book to book can be nightmarish and i think by calling it excalibur we kind of forget that it can be more than one thing because like the cross time caper is just exiles you know well exiles is just the cross time caper but now we feel like cross time capers belong in exiles not excalibur and i just think that's a real disservice to such a beautifully multifaceted legacy that deserves to be transformative that's just because humans tend to use static language to try and describe a dynamic world which is like 90 some percent of all of our arguments and miscommunication anyway i was gonna say if you want to cross time caper check out marauders because that's what's happening right now what's going on with mordred because talk about a character that seems really underdeveloped and whose storyline is it's really seems to be happening in the margins but it seems to be like this conflict between mordred and arthur we're getting a little softening of arthur's stance on his son in this particular issue and i'm wondering how that hit for you for everyone isn't that isn't it also just objectively false is it roma merlin's daughter no and like mordred is just like mordred just kind of mordred more like bordred am i right (laughs) (laughs) this guy Holy shit. Yes, I have a rim shot ready. He's like, I got brought back and no one likes me. And I don't know why anyone likes me. And they're like, dude, that's your power. And he's like, I don't want to get why no one likes me. Oh my he's God. He's a MacGuffin maybe. baby. And like beyond MacGuffin baby, he's like a whiny MacGuffin baby. So that's cool. like, there is no version of Mordred where he's like, hey guys, I just, I really want to do something to further the plot in a positive way, or at least cover some new ground. He's like, I am ye old bad timey bastard baby. Bastard <laughs> baby, here I am. Me do naughty. I don't know but it's terrible hold on last year we covered an issue of Excalibur where I had asked the room if anyone was like caught up or knew what was going on with Mordred and no one fucking knew and then Nico flipped out in our discord because like Mordred was going on in three different books apparently that none of us were reading except Nico Um, (laughs) no one but me So I like there has to have been character development on him there. Like, is this just no? He just uh, kind of died. Hard swerve? Is this ignoring that? Like, what? He, he just he died. Just kind of die, and they are just ignoring it. Like over and over again. Mordred's name, you know, part of more comes from the Latin death, so it makes sense that he dies a bunch. His name also means within bounds, observing moderation. I don't know if that plays into anything. I'm just denoting this that his name. That's what his name means. I do find it interesting because we had Mordred 
set up in over in Excalibur with my favorite phrase, a friend of Mordred. Mm-hmm. Mordred, I think, was set up to be something more important, but I think there are page constraints and issue constraints that Teeny maybe wasn't able to get the full vision of the story for Mordred. I hope that this is more so laying groundwork for this specific character. And my eventual hope is that Arthur is killed, so then Jamie Braddock can come back to Krakoa and cause some havoc and chaos there, and we could have Mordred be the king, and then we can have Mordred have an actual story. And this was something that I did talk about earlier on in our first coverage of Knights of X, that there were 10 players here that Betsy is taking on her quest. And that's a lot of people and not enough pages to dedicate specific story and characterization to, where some characterization will have to take sidelines to other characters that are more prevalent to the specific lot. You know, we're getting a lot of Betsy narrative because this is, you know, her book. This is about Betsy. This is about Betsy's quest and the people she gets to bring along with her. But characters like Mordred and Kylan have to have their characterization be on the back burner because we have other characters at play that a little more make sense to the narrative that get to have that forefront. Now, it isn't to say that Mordred maybe won't have a will in the last issue. We'd see this great moment of characterization, this great big story for him that's set up for someone else. But unfortunately for Mordred, there isn't really enough time to dedicate to his particular story. And I think that's kind of fine. It's fine that he's bland. It's fine that he's kind of like unseasoned chicken. I don't think it really is a detriment that he hasn't really gotten his chance to shine yet, but I do look forward to someone else being able to tackle it in the future. It does really seem like, though we are only getting five issues of this, Teeny has said we're getting more Betsy Captain Britain story. I would not be surprised if the next thing that we got was a Captain Britain series. Maybe it's another mini. Maybe it's another five issues. But I wouldn't be surprised if we sent a bunch of the X characters back to Krakoa having finished up whatever is going on for this particular mission. But Betsy is still doing work in Avalon and Another World. And that could lead us to Mordred stories. The fact of the matter is, Teeny Howard and Jonathan Hickman did this amazing thing by bringing back and revitalizing Other World the way that they did. It could be its own office, separate from the X-Men, the type of stories that you could tell in all of these various zones with all the characters that we have. Mordred having to be an annoying MacGuffin baby with a weird history is kind of just the unfortunate cost of doing business at this point. There's so many characters. They're all so great. Even ones like Bay, like there's no way she's getting the plot development that she could get. She's such an awesome character, but she's been great in this and that's okay. But somebody has got to really suffer the worst and it's probably Mordred, but that's okay because he is a thing of Arthurian legend. He can come back in a lot of different ways. Mm. He will inevitably be important and so he can be a MacGuffin for now and we'll see what happens with the next adventure. Yeah, and big props to Teeny because this really is a huge cast of characters that she's balancing about as well as you could over, you know, four issues so far of standard size, 20 pages each, to have 10 on the team, plus the supporting around them, plus, you know, you've got Saturnine and you've got Roma and you've got, you know, then all the antagonists with Arthur and Merlin and you've got, you know, the Sevalithi and uh, the other people, you've got all the characters there engaging with along 
along the way, like Jim Jaspers and the Crooked Market and Death. And like, it's a huge cast of characters to be balancing time appearance agency on. And And props to Bob Quinn for balancing, getting them all on the page sometimes. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Amazingly rendered. One of the things that gets me down about a lot of X books frequently, I really cannot get over that the fact that there are so many characters in this book and Bob Quinn manages to get them all. And I mean, he even talked about it can be really difficult, but I feel as though frequently due to the style of the widescreen decompressed narrative of books like X-Men, just as an example, or X-Force as well, even when there's only five characters, you need a double splash page to express the thing. This book sparingly uses splash pages in a way that highlight hot, cool, romantic, and completely emotionally satisfying lesbian kisses. (laughs) And other books kind of waste them on big gun explosion in space. And that's not as satisfying. I mean, there's so many things that I love about Bob Quinn's work, but that he will take two panels of a four panel spread and fit 20 care, you know, 20 good guys in one panel, 20 bad guys in the next one. And you never for a second look and go, oh, I don't know who that is. Every person is rendered perfectly and clearly. And we have all seen the two page spread of bad guys on the left side, good guys on the right side coming towards each other. Every once in a while, it's cool in a huge series like, you know, maybe Judgment Day if there's one of those in the middle of the crossover somewhere. Totally cool. With five issues of Knights of X, you have got to use every panel to the best of its ability. And I think you're exactly right. This kiss, one whole page, one of the most important moments in comics history, period. Definitely, you know, the last 10 years, it's like top three. Good guys versus bad guys. It's really cool. But if you can do it in in two panels, if you've got the talent to make everybody look as gorgeous as they do and make it really clear, so much better to do that. And then the story moves so much more freely. Matteo Loli was on Dugan's Marauders, right? When we look at that book to say where, you know, we had characters that would get lost and we felt like we just weren't seeing them for a while because Duggan wasn't writing them into script. An artist who can add them in or keep them in panel more often because they're willing to put the extra characters in really takes away from that feeling like like we've been missing this character or not seeing them because they're always there. So that way when they step up or have their moments, they don't feel as far apart. Bob Quinn, in terms of how he does that, is probably one of the best in the X line for it in terms of that arsenal of artists um and yeah he doesn't his big moments don't need that type of his battles don't need that like i think of the biggest moment in way of x or whether it was the onslaught issue afterwards i don't remember if it was the last issue of way of x or the onslaught issue but with nightcrawler that was not done that huge massive nightcrawler moment was not done in one giant splash page it was done in a series of sequential panel boxes that you know made it feel more dynamic and moving as well because that's the thing about big splash pages like while they're pretty and they're great for like green grabs like it loses that sense of motion that you get from you know dynamic sequential art that good paneling gives you and and we didn't need that for the big kiss the big kiss i want to go find i want to i want to find bob quinn and artist alley at a con and get a, a you know 12 by 18 of of that big kiss now i completely agree it's just so magical and it's transformative for the characters because there's so infrequently moments of happiness for either one of them that aren't marred by tragedy or darkness or also finding out in another world you're a swan you know whatever it happens 
happens to be. And here we have these two women who have been oppressed, hurt, and like there's metacontextual value to this story as well, especially when we're talking about that these are characters that recognize that they are being put into a trope situation, right? I feel as though the world at large, looking at these two women who fandom have long felt could very well be together and have often been held back from those sort of roles are both existing in a book that they kind of, to borrow a phrase from Mike Carey and the unwritten, kind of cankered into. Betsy was never meant to be the Captain Brit, and Rachel was never meant to be the Jean Grey Phoenix character. And both of these characters had to fight their way into existing, and that makes their love even more beautiful on like a meta-contextual level, because the idea that these two women even get to exist surpasses the expectation of what these character archetypes, Phoenix and Captain Britain, ever expected to be. We will look back at this as a time in which the boundaries around who would be allowed to be a queer character expanded. One of the things that people kept saying was they're never going to put it on the page because then those characters are canonically queer and, you know, if you want to use them in movies or something, you might have a lot more difficult time than if it's left ambiguous and they can have a heterosexual partner when they get on screen. People have said this is why you're never going to see Logan and Scott kiss or acknowledge that the relationship involves the two of them being together as well. And that one's totally plausible and fine. We're not going to get into it. But this, these are big characters. Like these are characters that really matter. And there are absolutely ways that they can be in heterosexual relationships. So it's fine. It's not, that doesn't matter one way or the other, but that this is added to their character bio and background and will be seen as viable and will be something that people know about the characters from a brand recognition standpoint that they, it was allowed to be these two feels like the boundary has expanded and there is more that we're seeing be permissible in a way that, as Jake said at the very start, it shouldn't be like this still, but since it is, it feels like a win that we're here. I have one little thing on it that, and this might just be my own personal thing, is that it's so beautiful, but I am not the biggest fan of the Bob Quinn. I don't know if I want to say redesign of Rachel in this, where she just looks so much like Chandra Nalar from Magic the Gathering to me with the flame hair and that she's less identifiably resonating as Rachel in this moment that it's it's a bit like Psylocke kissing Chandra Nalar and not like Betsy kissing Chandra and not Betsy kissing Rachel for me because it's this redesign that I I visually kind of strongly more attached to a different character from a different you know IP that's my only knock on it is just you know that that parts of that uh redesign looked so much like a different character to me when Rachel was host to the Phoenix she would regularly get fire hair as kind of a mark of that when she was manifesting her power there is something that really like medieval magic fantasy about it as well being here that kind of doesn't make it look so mutant but makes it look a lot more magical it vibes very much and uh, for those of you who don't follow Magic the Gathering lore we should tell you Chandra Nalar is another character that a number of writers have tried to make explicitly queer and the fucking powers that be refuse to allow it to happen and keep trying to find some straight male writer to come in and be like no look she thinks a guy is hot look we don't worry about it don't forget the you know all the thousands of people online shipping her and Nissa and all of the that's been built into that nope 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 she saw a guy shirtless it's okay we did a hetero I just love how laden with history this whole relationship is I mean Rachel was the team telepath before she disappeared into Mojo World and then Betsy took over for her and they they kind of had this like not a lot of interaction until much later and Claremont was the one who I think really gave them a lot of that interactivity during his his re 
3 takeover in the 2000s. When Teeny was writing Excalibur, I really loved how Betsy was based at the lighthouse and inviting Rachel back, and Rachel wasn't based there anymore. And it, just this callback to first era Excalibur reminding us that like Rachel was a part of this too, because she hasn't been a part of Excalibur for a long time. She's not really, you know, nestled into the mutant UK of it all anymore and hasn't been. But that callback really to me was was one of the roots of that relationship, the the spark that really like got the whole thing going. I guess I really just like the history of these two characters and of these two characters in a relationship. Because that that's a much more recent history, but it still feels really organic and natural. Like here are these two people who've kind of been in the same social group for a while, circling each other, but finally like circling around to each other and seeing each other in the right way that this can happen. And I just it feels natural. It feels organic. It feels beautiful. For me, one of the biggest things is Rachel essentially coming out in this, finally getting confirmation of some queer identity for a character that for so many people was a queer onboarding character right from her inception that queer people saw themselves in Rachel. They saw their experiences in her. The coding was so blatant that was it even coding? And they held on to this idea that that's who this character was, but it was never allowed to come to fruition. She got in a lot of relationships that felt- 40 fucking years. (laughs) Yes, for 40 years with a lot of, you know, Corvus and the stupid sword that is her mom, Nightcrawler, as you mentioned, like so many relationships that just didn't feel right or plausible. And on top of that, there's a whole aspect of her identity that is being left unsaid, suppressed in the closet. And this is such a freeing and beautiful moment for the character, but for like thousands of queer readers for whom this was an identifying and anchoring character. And that's really beautiful. And the idea that somebody like Betsy, who has had relationships with people like Warren that felt totally natural and realistic, she might be bisexual. Maybe she's not. Maybe this is just the one woman that she loves. There are any number of possibilities, but it all feels real and authentic. It feels earned and it speaks to a number of possible different queer identities for characters that much more represents what life is like for people and what queer identity and same-sex attraction is like for people. Well, don't forget, Sam Humphreys did that really weird, sexy, uncanny X-Force volume that was basically just like 12 issues of Betsy having threesomes with Phantom X and and the girl version of Phantom X. Yep, true. So she has that. Got that in her belt. When I saw this kiss, my skin was cleared, my crops were watered, and my Wi-Fi had great connection. Uh, (laughs) And it was a lot of things of what I was looking forward to. I really appreciate that we got this kiss. And as as I said before and earlier in the episode, it's just something that I think we needed representation-wise that I'm really happy that we got. And I hope it makes the people who see themselves in this kind of relationship very happy that, you know, it was front and center, no subtext about it. It's, it's, you know, very gay. And we love that. Hey everybody, Nico here again. This next segment speaks for itself. This team gets so deep into the lore of Marauders and the bigger picture it might play for the Marvel Universe, and I couldn't be more excited than to bring it to you. Hope you guys enjoy the segment. I'm Jake, and you can find me on Twitter at OmegaSentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. Hey guys, I'm Broadway. You can find me on Twitter at BWay3RD. That's B-W-A-Y, the number 3-R-D. And you should get your monkeypox shot. Facts. Miente, it's Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. 
Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsphere3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me at comic underscore canary on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And we hope you survive the experience, unlike poor Kate Pride. Let's hope it doesn't take another 18 tries to bring her back. We're going to cover Marauders number four, Pan-Dimensional Prison Break, written by Steve Orlando, drawn by Eleonora Carlini, with colors by Matt Miller, letters by VCs Ariana Mar, and Tom Muller on design. And so right off the bat, we're jumping into action off of the assassination of Xandra at the end of the previous issue. And we see the ramifications of that over in X-Men Red almost immediately. And so um, I just kind of want to open with a question. How are we feeling about the way Marauders is intersecting with other books right now? Like, what are your thoughts on how these events are or will or could reverberate back to Krakoa and Arako? I always love when they kind of do stuff like that, when they kind of intersect even like when when like a non-event is going on. My kind of issue with Marauders right now, though, is this is not anywhere near where I thought this book would be heading. It's advertised kind of as like this, you know, now they're trying to save the mutants from the other countries that don't accept Krakoa as a sovereign nation, try and get them out of there. And the first thing they do is go to space. What you're doing doesn't really seem to fit your mission. No, I mean, the pivot to pansexual space pirates was like pretty (laughs) immediate. And we just jump right into action. And that's kind of like the hallmark of this book at this point. I give Steve Orlando credit for kind of like the myth building and, you know, going back to Eric the Red and, you know, kind of like building all this. I appreciate that, but... I really, really could use some character moments and development mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. like specifically Somnus, like, because that's just a blank slate. I mean, and he created Somnus, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like you would think there might be, you know, a little bit of a bias and, and, and kind of using this to, to, I don't know, make us fall in love with the character. And if anything, it feels like to avoid that bias, he's kind of like not giving Somnus special attention and it just feels like, okay, I don't know. And like the other characters, it's like, okay, we know enough about them, so we don't have to really develop anybody. In fact, I feel like some of the characters have even regressed a little, and I hate to say it, but like mm. Daken or Akiro, however you'd like to call him, Aki, as Somnus calls him, um, just kind of feels, I don't know. But there's action. It's fun. It feels like a sugar-fueled Saturday morning cartoon. Yes, that's exactly it. It definitely feels like one of those. <laughs> I mean, in no small part aided by this hyperkinetic art where you know so the action scenes are marked by all of this like hot violet uh, violent energy in in the coloring versus those those quieter moments which are a lot cooler a lot slower a lot less kinetic it is a hyper pop story it does feel that way i really like marauders i definitely still working on adjusting to the art style because it is so kinetic but i think for me it's tying together some of the threads that hickman left with you know the first generation of mutants and pulling in also the complex relationship with the Shi'ar because I think like we understand them now as being allies but that has not always been the case taking the time to flesh them out more flesh out like an Eric the Red like what is this man in like kink garb doing <laughs> here you know like, like he doesn't really make any sense otherwise they're also picking up on some of the secret X-Men threads with Deathbird and the fact that the ending of secret X-Men is actually way heftier knowing Delphos 
is like scheming to remove her from the equation. Like it all is like, mm-hmm. ah, the sea tree mm-hmm. attacked. And it's like, no, this is a plot by the Kin Crimson to do what they always do, which is to like off problematic people. I also think that the I, the theme for the Shi'ar of having to wrestle with their own history is really important. Blurred Without Fear on YouTube has talked a lot about the way in which the actions of the Shi'ar mimic some of um, revisionist and ahistorical activities going on in these United States, where it becomes more about preserving the idea of the nation rather than doing justice and facing like your bad behavior. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually a really powerful theme, mm-hmm. especially with Krakoa and and seeing how Krakoa could be if they don't take, as Cyclops did in the Hellfire Gala, like truth and justice. They don't put those things at the center. I think that's such a good point, particularly in light of the scene where they find the Lupak land that then grows into the whole memory guy of the Kin Crimson, because that to me was so reminiscent of that first issue of Immortal X-Men where we see that Sinister is using Moyers in a tube to save Scum. Mm-hmm. You know, it raises that question for me of, you know, what is the line between like empowered people as objects for use and consumption versus like the Krakoan line of mutants as their greatest natural resource? Like, what is that line? And what is the slippery slope? And it seems like the Shi'ar have not only gone down the slippery slope, but have come back to try and cover their tracks as a result of that. And I don't know if you could have the Shi'ar Empire without doing that. And I think that's the like real trouble for for the readers, you know? I mean, you mm-hmm. look at all of these empires, like the Free were making a brood egg, the intergalactic empire of Wakanda was built on slavery. Like the Shi'ar are not like a good institution. They are good people. I do stand Deathbird, but like <laughs> Stan Deathbird. They just be like blowing up planets or colonizing them, like depending on the whims of an emperor who might be immortal now. Like it's a little sketch. I mean, and Krakoa has the pit where they throw people who break the law. It's not really clear. Like Xavier it's... doesn't like when they break the right, law. <laughs> right. And so there's this sense of like, what are the sacrifices in the name of nation building, in the name of empire building that are considered acceptable versus unacceptable? And really, like as readers, we're like, this is all pretty unacceptable. Right. Yeah. It's unacceptable, but we all love Krakoa and would pretty much die for it. So, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting tension for readers and fans, I think. Attention. And obviously, it's it's a tension that lost a bunch of people, you know, from the get Oh, the mutants are the villains now and all that, you know, exciting discourse. But like for the people that are still here, like, yeah, honey, we know there's problems. I do want to take back one thing because I, I said I'm, I'm hungry for character moments. And I will say this, if there was a character who, who got a little shine in this issue, it was Tempo. Oh, for sure. Delving into her powers and kind of identifying her as a chronokinetic and kind of, it's cool. She's more powerful than I ever perceived her to be. I think there's a little power creep going on, but I, you know, I get it. Like, it's not like she had too many appearances before this. Power creep has been happening a lot in this era, so. I've already seen some cool things with Tempo. Tempo and Aurora made a circuit so that they could travel faster than light. Tempo and Somnus made a circuit so that they could survive and plan longer in the vacuum of space. And I don't know if it's a circuit that she's doing when she's bringing the the team back for the time and space heist, but she's doing it. It's using a boost fruit, so I guess technically that is a circuit, right? Because it's like a product of another mutant. It's Krakoa's body. Yeah. 
I love the deep cut mutants that we get through this era. There was a scene in an X-Men Unlimited issue where I saw a character who'd been killed off in an Anacenti Daredevil issue in the 80s. And I was like, we remember, we remember all the mutants. I'm very excited to see this like first generation of mutants that they're kind of teasing that we're going to be seeing. Because I've always been a proponent of like more like visible mutations. As a disabled person with invisible illness as well, it's always important to me that it's like these things are kind of seen and understood. And I think having a lot of those like mutants coming out that it's like kind of looking mutant, I think would be really good for a lot of people because of like the subtext that X-Men always has and everything. And that just to me seems like it's going to be really cool but again with like with all the powers and the circuits in the fandom it seems to be pretty divisive about whether or not people like it or not especially with this issue the big thing that i'm kind of concerned about is that we were just told what a year and a half two years ago that okara were was where the original mutants came from and now there's threshold which was Uh, yeah yeah so So it does very explicitly say in X-Men 12, I believe, that Apocalypse is the first mutant of the second generation of mutants. Okay. So that is what, like, he's picking up on, that there was a first generation. I think in part because of the whole Jason Aaron Avengers BC of it all. Right. That kind of laid the groundwork for something that had to precede Apocalypse and Selene in them. But yeah, this has been kind of... I, I've been trying to like point this out to people on Twitter because a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? Okara was supposed to be first. And it's like, no, no, no. But I also think there's some quirky, timey, wimey thing going on with Threshold. There's no way they could exist back then it raises some some really big questions about mutants as a as a subspecies of humanity because the book here says that threshold existed before humanity evolved on earth and let's just take that at face value and say like okay so there was a mutant civilization billions of years ago what does that do to the mutant metaphor what does that do to mutants and mutant culture today does it change their status or their history in any way to make them of a people who were once one of the major civilizations of the planet well i mean i think if you you know take the tried and true queer subtextual reading of of x-men this kind of speaks to that in that you know queer people are not written about in history they are erased i mean there's an entire you know generation basically i think there there's something there that they're kind of playing with or at least you know it's there to read if you want to go the literal route for those who don't know this about me i am an evolutionary biologist like that's what i do and that's my passion and this kind of like scientifically i'm i I like it (laughs) purely a scientific point of view and a metaphoric type of view where it's like we have mutants as this next evolution of humanity and as well as all of the metaphors that the x-men and the mutants stand for Mm -hmm. and then you're gonna go and say oh no they slay they predate humans are and then it makes me go down the rabbit hole of like wait so are humans the evolution of mutant kind and then they re-evolved back just like the freaking dolphins and whales where they came to land and then they came back to water like that's where my mind goes with all of this like i'm just trying to figure out the biology of it all because (laughs) that's where my mind goes all the time i love you so much (laughs) evelyn that is a really uh, incredible fact that i certainly did not know about whales and dolphins yeah whales and dolphins like we all evolved from sea creatures essentially and then we like they we came on land for a little bit as mammals and then some mammals returned back into the ocean
ocean. Like, like all sea mammals were once land mammals that went back into the ocean. And you see the dolphins and sharks being evolutionary. It's called coevolution, where they both have the same niche, which is like the same type of living situations and food chain s kind of thing that they do. And they kind of co-evolved into very similar shapes, sizes, and their food source, and even their own activity and mentality and family dynamics are even like both similar and different. And I'm kind of seeing that in like human mutant evolution as well, as well as that like metaphor that we get for us as queer people, where um, there's always been queer people, but Mm -hmm. even back with like freaking Achilles and Alexander the Great being obsessed with Achilles and his gay lover. And we see these waves of like homosexuality is accepted. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And it kind of mimics that as well a little bit. One of the other prongs of the mutant metaphor is the like often complex racial dynamic of it. But I mean, to me, as like as a queer person, I definitely am reminded of the ways in which we are have always been around. But then like history is built around is like constructed around removing us from the narrative to sort of stimulate the idea that that these people just appeared right so like that also coincides with the kind of racial component of that where you know there were people in the americas before europeans Mm -hmm. there were uh you know there were all sorts of thriving civilizations in africa before colonialism and to me that's kind of what jumps out that there were these people that existed beforehand and we don't know what happened to them because it's it's clear by the time okara comes around they're gone even by the time you know there's this moment in avengers free comic book day judgment day where uranus like annihilate these monkeys that are evolving into like a a hive mind society and so again like those could have been you know the the second generation of mutes etc etc i'm also reminded of x-men 4 when apocalypse talks about the end of the bronze age and like how he did that but people don't know like humans don't know anything about that Mm -hmm. um and so i appreciate the idea within krakoa of of discovering the longevity of history and long and the longevity of the self that kind of transcends the present moment um and reminding people that you know you're not uh, strange you're not coming to replace white people you're not coming to replace straight people you've always been there and if they just allowed you to like exist you would have a long and robust history and less trauma this idea of going back and finding those stories that that are there but have either been obscured or erased or never were told to begin with the character the obliterator shows from like the hard skin to the wet skin there's a mention of some of bishop's mutant friends and partners from like his future those sorts of things where like again sort of building out a history building out a larger perspective and i appreciate that his kind of easter eggs mirror and thread those parts of the marvel universe just as kate and them are working on reading and and sort of mapping out the broader experience of mutant I had never heard of the Obliterator before. I did not know that that was a thing. This is a character with like a 30 plus year history. So I to love see that. them show up in this book that's like billions of years ago, that's pretty wild. And that is a deep cut. And I had no idea hard skins and wet skins and all that was an existing thing. So that warms me to the whole concept a lot more. Deathbird calls out the, the crystal claws. And I had to like look that up because that's another like deep cut from Shi'ar lore. But you know, you have a multi-planetary 
empire they're gonna have all of this like lore the Shi'ar offer in some ways a vision of what could be for mutant kind and in, in all of its complexities and also what we would like to avoid I gotta say i do love the collaboration between books and you know i don't know maybe for some readers that you know like maybe that's not a great jumping on point and it's a little confusing if you but like it feels like you can kind of just take it at face value and keep reading and and you'll be fine but when and if you have read the other stuff it just connects so beautifully that it's like it just it's such a cool era right now and this book in particular feels like a nesting doll it feels like there are secrets within secrets that we're still we're still waiting to get to the center of it and see how it's all tying back to what's going on in current events because i i for the life of me i'm convinced that this is going to tie loop back into judgment day somehow that maybe threshold is related to the deviants i don't know i'm but i'm like excited to see where and how those connections are built yeah i i'm curious about that too again because there has to be some sort of like there is a question of like what happened to these people and how did kate's handwriting get in a box of mysterium back Mm -hmm. a billion there's some clear time shenanigans going on and we've already started that i'm very fascinated for how that all shakes out are we gonna resurrect kate in time to travel back eons and have her coined the first mutant slur who knows yeah, I'm I'm confused by that because they've already gone back in time. So are they going to pick up the Kate that exists in that particular timeline? Or are they going to go forward in time to resurrect her and then bring her back? <laughs> I'm just imagining like the chalkboard from Back to the Future, like as you're <laughs> explaining that. Who knows? Since you brought us into it, Kyle, let's talk about that point in the timeline because the the marauders who go back find themselves on what looks like Avalon during the, its fall, during the big fight between, uh, we're calling him Nemesis now, and that's what we're going to stick with, Nemesis and Exodus. So Kate would be on Excalibur at this point, and Magneto would be mostly in a vegetative state, and I think Scott and Jean are on that station. One of the time drives is there, right? One of is a fact fascinating thing also i think the fact that they're being kept that these old mutants are being kept in a sort of in a time drive reminds me a lot of the kind of cerebro of it all like there's like mm. a file of them somewhere i mean say what you want about the shiar and the imperialism of it all i am impressed that they were like we don't like these people so we're gonna save them in a file and dart them throughout time like that's kind of, <laughs> like if you're into prison that's like pretty smart if memory serves colossus should be there and back then he was going through his emo acolyte phase which was a really interesting time for the character in my opinion so the sequence of events was the age of apocalypse ended nemesis is in some meteorite floating around avalon and the acolytes realize that he's some frozen mutant in a rock and pull him in he wakes up kills rusty collins kills milan then amelia vote goes to earth for help and pulls in cyclops and phoenix and that's about and it's the next issue when the station falls to pieces and Gene and Scott are separated and Scott falls in Australia with some accolades. And actually that's where we start to get Frenzy's turn. Yes. Yes. Because Frenzy like takes to Scott in that rescue mission and is like, he's helping us. It's interesting to me that Avalon is the Shi'ar base that they go back to because that was such a point of contention when it went up because it was part Greymalk in Cable's base and part Shi'ar tech that Magneto stole during his time 
as a teacher at Xavier's, it's almost like a backdoor to get us into this next plot point where we're on Avalon because it happens to have like all this Shi'ar tech built in. When it comes to time travel, you really can't sweat it too much. You just kind of have to enjoy the ride. Like literally any episode of Legends of Tomorrow, you're just like waiting <laughs> for the the compulsory, where are we? The question isn't where are we? It's when are we? Yep. I appreciate that, you know, the time travel story. Obviously, Kate got murked, but like the time travel story does involve her team and some really serious questions about affecting the timeline and the way that then affects people who are attuned to it, like Tempo. I would love to see, again, like a mutant trigger with Kate and Tempo because that would totally make sense because like Kate has been used, you know, in stories that have in huge stories that have a lot to do with time travel she's dead so she can't object to this plan and she's the one who has the most oh i've gone back in time and almost fucked shit up experience right and i know that it's not the best thing to do but she's not there to object you've got bishop who's like hey time travel i do that all the time that's tuesday and we don't speak about the many years that i traveled into the future hunting down hope (laughs) (laughs) bishop's been around the block for sure but i love that she was like don't get it twisted honey you're a tourist i am the time stream like Like, this is actually my gig my ministry like you took a couple of classes and attempted to kill a child i do this for a living right it's a lot more like storm's relationship to weather it's it's Mm -hmm. like she's connected to it she feels it like you know the fabric of it like or richter's connection to the earth where like it's how he like moves and hears and feels things it's much deeper and that's something i've always appreciated about mutants that's very different than a lot of other superheroes because it's so innate it was a turnoff to me when Richter when when Tinny kind of started pivoting with that because I was like wait a minute his power it was like vibration he could just you know like shake a sentinel part like it had nothing to do with earth it was like vibrations with all the work that specifically that she put in to the character and just like his growth and the magic and all that I'm I'm a convert like I am fully here for you know our, our lord druid Richter and his beautiful gay lover Shatterstar thank god so happy they're back together tempo really really gets to go off in this book and i part of me wondered whether or not it was because by taking kate off the board you've got that much more breathing room for other characters to kind of like be and assert themselves yeah and this was definitely tempo's time to shine oh yeah shout out to lesbians shout out to lesbians absolutely i love the cover which was drawn by kale new it reads to me like tempo is missing someone back home and doesn't have signal and it's just like ho-hum i would rather be there than here that feels like a real moment in in her head right now and there's an element of ennui the background is distorted as though everybody else is doing kind of time like she's at least freezing or speeding them up like just like in the marauders annual when she's like breaking up with that girl and she just Mm -hmm. speeds it up (laughs) and like (laughs) i feel like she exists in a way that like quicksilver kind of does where like their relationship to other people and the speed at which they move and their like time relativity and all that is always weird i just love the like attitude of tempo i was a big like time for tempo person and i'm really glad that despite not winning the election people were like no this character fucking rock also like is a like one of the few like black women characters in superheroes and has such a unique power and like
like we should lean into that. This was definitely Tempo's book. Well, it doesn't seem like anyone else really did very much. I guess Psylocke knifed that guy in the head and Cassandra Nova complained about it. But I mean, this was so much Tempo and not much of anyone else. I think that's something that's interesting about the way in which Steve writes is that prior issues will have demonstrations of feats by certain characters and then also on the other side have kind of characterizing moments in terms of dialogue from others. So like, you know, in prior issues, it's been Cassandra Nova and her quick wit with like Tempo and Aurora doing, you know, hyperdrive type stuff on the other side. And I think that is a hard adjustment to like a hard style to to get all the time it's taken me a little bit of adjustment but i actually think it's a pretty interesting way to balance a large cast which is to show off some of their abilities while also giving kind of rapport and dialogue to others that is like more at the forefront so you get the sense that other characters will have those moments and will have some of that development but it's kind of being paced out per issue right like cassandra nova's definitely gotten to flex a bit in prior issues and then in this one you know there's little things like when tempo says i know you want to go back in time and and Cassandra Nova says I have no counter argument of merit like that's <laughs> funny and it tells you a lot about her as a person even though she's not really the center of the book or of the action mm-hmm. or Akihiro knowing what a pack is and how it works and and an understanding that they're using this genetically modified alien I guess as their like Moira save cartridge I thought that was interesting it tells you a lot about his understanding of the Shi'ar and his history and what not without really centering him as the focal character. I feel like Steve is charting a course for Romulus and kind of like mm. the Lupikite berserkers and kind of, you know, the lineage of Wolverine when, when he says, you stink with the blood of my kin. Wolverine's past is best shrouded in mystery and the more we go back and, you know, and I'm not a big fan of like, you know, Angel is an angel and Nightcrawler mm. was a demon and, you know, Wolverine is this, you know, from a descendant of berserkers but you know there's i get the appeal to it but it's something i think best left avoided but and it could be threaded into like you know threshold and their interactions with the shiar there's there's a way in which you could do that that is not annoying that and that builds out kind of mutant biological history but you know i it, it seems like a difficult thing to navigate well and to be real though like you know thanks to wolverine the berserker with claws kind of became an archetype you know staple position in every team yeah you know from the 80s onward like you know well, even as the archetype... imperial guard has a has a berserker wolf guy who wolverine replaced during the phoenix saga right, right. yeah yeah and he his was... costume yep. i used to have an action figure of that mm-hmm. right which feels it... like a deep pull right there well to me at like my original theory for this book was that the the first generation of mutants were kidnapped by the Shi'ar and used as breeding stock for the original Imperial Guard. I wonder if the Threshold mutants are eligible for the waiting room. It's a great question. Hmm. Mm. Bring back the thresholds and uh, continue populating Araco, maybe? I mean, we don't really know anything about the details of the waiting room beyond its existence and, like, how it works. We don't know, like, what the queue looks like. Yeah, we don't even know how they know that somebody wants to return instead of just fading away. So. Which, by the way, it feels like an, uh, an intersection between this storyline and the Siege Perilous over in Knights of X. Mm. 
Although that's more happening in other worlds, I mean, the Siege Perilous is tied to Shi'ar, and I mean, like, that could happen. I mean, and if there's one place where you could just totally do that, it would be, like, within the Siege Perilous, right? Well, going off of what I think Kyle just said about, like, knowing, like, if someone actually wants to come back, and it's mm-hmm. like, would they bring someone back that doesn't want to come back? And what would those consequences be? But that's a whole nother rabbit hole we don't have time for. Well, the first question you ask yourself there is, does Charles Xavier have a purpose that they can serve? I like that idea. I think it also opens opportunities for Tempo, Cassandra Nova, and a Cerebro not doing a full X lives of Tempo, but just, you know, that there could be some interesting usage of Cerebro and time travel. Also, if you have a whole nother society of mutants, the question is, like, where do you put them? And, Mm -hmm. you know, in Life 9, benevolence is where the mutants go. And if they are going to have some sort of diplomatic accord with the Shi, and the Shi'ar are going to pay reparations, giving them a whole, like, space station to put their family might not be a bad idea. And sort of building out some of those elements of the futures that we saw through Moira's other nine lives. I don't know, it's interesting stuff. It opens a lot of doors, and I appreciate that. Appreciate you, Steve. And the Thruple. I love the Thruple. My final thought is Cassandra Nova's funky space helmet is growing on me. Yes. <laughs> is it a Cerebro? No, I think she stole it from one of the Kin Crimson. Okay. Yeah, it's like a wink and it's like Cerebro with attitude to fight in space. I wasn't thrilled when I heard we're bringing Cassandra Nova back. I was like, really? Really? And she's going to be what? Like, but I was geeked. I'm, I'm I was absolutely of, I'm, geeked up. I'm enjoying it. I mean, I'm enjoying her a lot. I actually was not enjoying this series at all. I, I read the first two issues and wasn't here for it. I actually didn't even read the third issue. I only read the fourth issue today. So I reread the entire series to, you know, understand what was going on for today's episode. And I actually liked it a lot better reading it through like all in one go as opposed to monthly. I thought it read a lot better. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. I love how excited the Moon Knight team gets about this book. It's such a passion for them and getting to edit it is really my privilege every month and we hope you guys enjoy. As always, we bring this show to you three times a week, MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Premiere Fridays. You can check the show out at xsforpodcast.com and at xsforpodcast on Twitter and you guys can find me, Nico, over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Don't forget, you guys can check out the incredible anthology I'm lucky enough to be a part of Young Men in Love where I have a story published alongside Marvel greats like Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveras, and Terry Bloss. So until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Friday, we're going to bring you the first issue of Judgment Day. And until then, we'll see ya. Hey, everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Extra Podcast, where we are going to talk about the Midnight Mission, Moon Knight number 13. I'm so glad that we got here. We weren't sure at first, but we got to issue 13. This is extended run. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. And you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Juan, too. You can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. Y'all, we made it. It got past 12 issues. I'm so excited. Moon Knight number 13. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's brought to us by Jed McKay. Our artist is Federico Sabatini. 
the amazing Rochelle Rosenberg on colors. And BC's Corey Pettit is our letterer. We have to applaud Steven Segovia and Rochelle Rosenberg for doing this front cover because it is phenomenal. I loved it so much. I think I got the EM Gist one, which is like a Alex Ross painted style one on a neon sign. I picked up the, the one that's a beautiful blue background, Moon Knight kind of hanging onto a hotel sign. Oh no, no, the Crescent Club sign. And just, oh, it's it's so delicious. This cover was phenomenal. I Oh, oh I saw that. I was like, God. I have to get that. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I saw that and I'm like, I, I practically threw other comic books out of the way to get to it. Oh, it was <laughs> yeah, that's so, a great cover. So beautiful. Before we get into this issue, let's do a quick roundup. So we're done with the first 12 issues, right? And we're dealing with the fallout from that first arc as well. But like, how do we feel about how that first year of Moon Knight comics really sat with us? It became quickly one of, if not my favorite Marvel book that is coming out monthly. There was so much depth in it, but it also was a really fun quick read like you know there's sometimes some really good books out there that are just so wordy sometimes you're like okay cool i have to be in the mood to read that but like this this book i could be in any kind of mood and read it because not only was it like in depth but it also was fun and breezy at the same time which is really hard to pull off i totally agree i i think this this book is the one where like if i get home from work and i'm really exhausted and i look i look over at immortal x-men and i'm like oh it's gonna be good but man it's gonna be so much to think about i i pick up moon knight and i'm like this is gonna be a quick breezy read it's going to have a lot of emotional depth but it's stuff that i can read over and over and like mm-hmm. learn more and more about it and it's something that won't get me tripped up on thinking about like temporal mechanics or <laughs> not yeah. i don't love a thinky comic but when i don't want to thinky comic when i want one that's just like some violence and some emotional depth and sometimes some like really inspired character choices i mm-hmm. will always pick up the night and it's absolutely my favorite comic to podcast about oh, and yeah. a lot of that is down to this team but a lot of it is down to the the craft that goes into it mm-hmm. it's hard to make a story that feels so quickly paced and yet feels so emotionally involved and that's exactly what this team has been able to do with this book is they give me something that I swear, I, I feel like I just blow through it in like 20 or 30 minutes, but it still always feels like it's a 30 page comic that I'm reading. And there's so much to eat, whether it's visual or color story or the storyline itself. It's all done so beautifully. I think this is one of those books that uh, strike the perfect balance between action and plot. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. not just action, 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 but it's also not just plot with like just people talking around all day we have both great action scenes we have great dialogue scenes we have great characterization fantastic art excellent pacing. some of the best best colors i've ever seen in a comic book some incredibly funky letters <laughs> yes yeah and yeah this book is is always at the top or very near the top of my pools whenever it comes out Bancho, you mentioned colors i want to start off today with talking about the colors a little bit because this is something that was really cool was that the scenes with taskmaster are all like these cold nighttime colors you know green blues and stuff like that but in those sequences uh the tutor has his like orange yellow sunglasses that stand out in every frame and make him really identifiable he's a guy who's like got nothing going on besides being a bearded 
dude in a vest, you know, and he's not somebody that you would recognize in a crowd. But after seeing his like orange glasses glaring out of all this green and gloom and black and blue, I would recognize this character almost anywhere just based on that very simple and very striking design. And in addition, it is cut and contrasted with the scenes with Moon Knight and the vampires, which are all these like pinks and oranges and rosy colors because they're taking place at sunrise. But Moon Knight's eyes stand out as these like sharp, cold blue in the middle of all that. And it creates a nice visual parallel with the tutor. I love the fact that the tutor does look like some adjunct professor that you would see at your local university. Like, like, like part of him is just non-threatening. He just seems like, you know, an everyman, somebody that you could watch walk through a crowd and just make really no note of him. But when you hear him talk and when you see the way, kind of the way he holds his body, the way he positions himself, he comes across as far sharper and far more threatening once yes. he gets going. And you're like, ooh, I think I just underestimated who I thought I was talking about. Oh my goodness. I love this characterization of Task master because usually taskmaster is just you know very very confident you know good at what they do of course blah blah blah. but they're like moon knight oh oh hell no Mm -mm, no no i'm not gonna die like this Yeah, I've heard it said that Taskmaster doesn't like to copy Moon Knight because Moon Knight would rather take a punch than dodge it. I think mm. I think Jed put yeah. that out on Twitter. What I also love about this issue is kind of bringing it back to the art too. Moon Knight and Taskmaster have some very similar silhouettes, right? Because they both got the cloak and the hood. Yes, yes. But mm-hmm. the art team painstakingly goes through and makes sure you can instantly like differentiate the two characters between either you know the coloring that Rochelle Rosenberg's done or the beautiful face work on Taskmaster's mask like you really can point them out even in any panels where they're together like you know just Moon Knight's coloring instantly draws you in I've got to say that is an amazing feat because they have such similar silhouettes yeah yeah mm-hmm. the page where Taskmaster is perched on some like girders above uh, Moon Knight looking down with the sun glinting in the eye of the camera that that is my favorite panel from this issue. I know we always like to talk about our favorite panels. This fight scene is so good. The colors are so widely contrasting with the reds and the oranges in the background and Moon Knight and Taskmaster's like bright white cowl and cape situation. And Moon Knight's cape, it's doing that crescent moon shape that is always the best, you know, that ever since like Sienkiewicz has been a signature of the art. It's curling around him in such an action pose and in parallel with his sword and the way that he's looking up and the light glinting off of everything and getting in the eyes. It's so beautiful. My favorite panel, it's tied between the one where Moon Knight's saying sunrise. Yeah. There's this pink bloom coming over, uh, like on his uh, left. I think that one. Or the one where he's getting out all the prisoners and he says, like, I'm getting you out of here. And it's just his shadow and the glowing eyes and the glowing moon mm-hmm. and this beautiful like bluish light behind him both of those it's so good it's so good and speaking of those panels in particular those are some beautiful art but I love Moon Knight's one-liners in this Jed McKay writes such a fucking badass Moon Knight but the sunrise the I'm getting you all out of here and then that final let's get right to the end so good my favorite panel is gentlemen I think it's time we talk and that the juxtaposition between Mr. Knight Stephen Grant and Jake Lockley. I'm All like, in this- oh, 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 it's yeah, so good. 
ones. Yeah. And I, each uh, each one is yeah. so, so different. So you see, you know, like the Mr. Knight in front of that big statuary in that very 1960s chair that he always sits in. The Stephen Grant in that more of the office space, that business kind of mind. And then Jake Lockley at the stripper stage. Yes, you've captured each character so perfectly. Oh, I loved it. My favorite page panel is going to be the one right before the one Steve was talking about where you've got Moon Knight with his sight and he is just like destroying somebody and he's like look out he's packing silver he's destroying a vampire and like that whole page that layout on that page is so beautiful the the coloring like so simple even in the panels where you know you think it's just black and white but there's so many other nuanced colors to kind of make the colors pop and then go to the panel like to the little thing right next to it where he's like and they're like hey Moon Knight and he's just standing there and he is in all black and his different colors of white are popping out I can't talk enough about like how much I love the art and the coloring and the writing in this book so like mm-hmm. I love that we're seeing more of these Egyptian swords ever since the Ten of Swords like yes yeah, we've got sort of a reintroduction to the status quo of where everybody is at Tiger's still hanging out at the Midnight Mission Reese is realizing like hey you know Moon Knight isn't really going out and doing this for me he's doing this because he needs to go out and hit somebody and they talk about how Moon Knight went to go visit Soldier's parent mom and you know and how upset she was but not at him but then bam Soldier reappears and he's a vampire called it we called it yep we feel vindicated (laughs) we called it in the past recording we did we absolutely called that one square on I had a conversation with a friend and listener of the podcast who was like no he's dead they said he was dead in that issue I was like listen buddy super comics they'll break your heart yeah well, I mean, he is still dead. He's technically. still technically dead. He's still technically dead. But I was like, you know, don't don't think you've seen the last of Soldier. I was so happy when he came back on the panel. I'm, Thank you. You can't give a boy a half a redemption and then kill him off like that. <laughs> I got attached to Soldier. How? One thing I, I did like about Soldier coming back, I think in the last recording I said that maybe he should die just to up the stakes. <laughs> I think it actually works out better if he survives as a vampire because he is a plot device that serves to introduce this new villain, right? Yes. So yeah. it's not just Soldier surviving for, uh, you know, to feel good, to make us feel good, but to actually move the plot forward. Yes. Because yeah. Tudor's yeah. whole deal is that he's the second most powerful vampire after Dracula, obviously, and he's like he's feeling feeling that Reese is encroaching on his turf, wait, like wait, some wait. vampire turf wars, right? I was trying to figure this out because Dracula doesn't live in New York and neither does Blade. And I was like, what vampire is he actually talking about here? Well, if, if Blade lived in New York, we wouldn't be dealing with the tutor right now, I don't think. Yeah. So. Blade and Dracula both don't live in New York. And that's why I was like, who is this vampire he's talking about? Is it Morbius? I thought it was Dracula, like, immediately. No, the so, way he's talking, it does imply it's Dracula, right? Because Dra- yeah. vampires are always like, oh, I'm the most powerful vampire, except for one other. But, like, in New York City? I think it's Morbius. <laughs> if I have to read a Morbius story, at least Jed McKay will be writing it. Yeah, I think Jed, Jed's got to do a way better job than whatever the fuck that movie was. <laughs> I like Morbius, at least in the animated series, so maybe we'll see more of that. <laughs> now, I have never liked Morbius. I just, uh I have to 
to roll my damn eyes at Morgan. But at the same time, if anybody can make me like a character that I vehemently hate, or at least vehemently dislike, it's going to be Jeb McKay and his team, because... Yeah, yeah. He made me care about Moon Knight deeply. He made me think of Tigra as more intellectual and a deeper character than I originally thought. Like, he made me care about a teenage vampire. <laughs> he's, his team is good. Fair, I think we were always going to care about Reese, but... <laughs> I know, but you know how, like, like, a side character or a background character can very easily get swallowed and just, yeah. you know, become, oh, yeah, you're the side kick we see every now and again or oh okay we know who you are but you're so background that we don't really know anything about you and instead he's been able to take a person who would just pretty much be background or or, or side character and and actually make her into somebody who's who's compelling and that's a hard thing to do speaking of making d-list villains that everybody hates compelling midnight man is back the original midnight man first appeared in moon knight number three i want to say and is a character who died a long time ago in like Moon Knight 9 or 10 maybe and there's a second Midnight with Jeff Wilde who was unbelievably Moon Knight's sidekick Moon Knight's previous sidekick was named Midnight and eventually got turned into a cyborg and became a super evil villain and goes by Midnight Man and was seemingly dead all the other all the previous Midnight Men are dead and I cannot wait to see Mark's former huge fuck up of a sidekick who got turned into a cyborg come back to haunt Mark with more of his failures I'm just saying Speedy from Green Arrow is less problematic Speedy was cool when he was Arsenal for a hot minute in the 90s yes but if you know Speedy before then he was called Speedy for a reason and it was a whole dare montage of don't do drugs kids it was Oh, it's so bad. I love how Jed has been able to take people who are seemingly normal type people, you know, like we've got the college professor type as the tutor. We had the like the sexy janitor type as the sweater. We had the crazy Moon Knight cosplayer as the Zodiac. I like love how he's been able to take these less fantastical villains and adversaries and turn them into something more and even take like a, a, a team with like the midnight mission in may tigra she should be like the most outlandish and compelling character because she's got the story but like she's still compelling here but he's also been able to take reese the the team that we love so much and just make her so much more and these characters are sort of falling outside of the normal looks and parameters of normal superhero comics but at the same time this still always feels like a superhero comic yeah hopefully jed will be able to do something interesting with nemian and grand mal who are two villains i I've never seen before and don't know anything about this is their first appearance oh is it really okay. oh okay just looking at them i'm like these designs are we are d-list characters that is no offense to jen or anybody else <laughs> no. like they right I, I thought they were from the way back machine i mean yeah. me and just looks like a very 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 off-brand saber too so <laughs> Mixed with Ogan because of the jaw thing. Oh my god. Well, I think it's like Nemean as in Nemean Lion, so he's probably going to be like really hard to damage and whatnot. But oh my god, off-brand Saber. So that makes him even more deepest uh, off-brand Saber Tooth, yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, he's oh definitely God, named after right. the Nibian lion for sure. That's a spot on. Uh, Grand Mal uh, seemingly something to do with seizures. Yeah, yeah. I, the, it's funny how these characters look like absolute jobbers. Like I, I don't know if Chad and Ket tends them to be real like big bad guys, but I have a feeling that they are going to be embarrassed. Oh, yeah. It's like when you watch right. a when you watch a wrestling match and like they put up like you know like the the rising stars versus the heels. like some no name people who have just first appeared. Yeah, not even the heels. Yeah. Just like some new green wrestler just out of college. Who is just like in a very create your own at home they're just here to fight. It's like, all right, this is not going to go well for you. Yeah, you're like, um, it's like somebody found the faux fur and warbler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Some really bright, bright aerobics gear. Bright aerobics gear is the number one. If I see somebody in bright aerobics gear come on first time with like pigtails, I'm like, you're going to get squashed. Uh, is going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> I do have every faith that Jeb and his team are going to actually make them compelling, vi- uh, you know, like villains. But I do love the fact that they, as they're being introduced, it's like you, you kind of look like some D-listers from like deep from the 80s. But I'm also really, really, really can't wait to like see how they are actually implemented because I know that like we laugh now, but. Then again, I also kind of laughed at Zodiac. And then Zodiac did some super messed up stuff. I'm like, oh, he is far more of a threat than I gave him credit for. So, yeah. Speaking of Zodiac, what do you think happened to him? I think he's just in prison somewhere. Yeah, did I was like, did he yeah, get away? Did he go to prison? I mean, I'm pretty sure he's not dead, but I'm... But I'm yeah. yeah. It was a bit surprising not seeing him here. But I get the feeling we're going to see him next issue. Yeah, with, they just mentioned sure what happened with Zodiac. So I'm like, is it a secret about where he went afterwards? Hmm. Or maybe where Mark is, is hiding him. Maybe. maybe. Oh my god, yeah. Right, we got him, like, trapped somewhere. Oh no. In a sarcophagus. In the Midnight Missions. Oh, no, yeah. The moment you said trapped, I was like, oh god, what if he has literally trapped him deep in the Midnight Mission? Yeah. I mean, the building is basically the House of Leaves house, where, like, nothing's ever the same. So, like, he's just like, ah, scary. you're thrown in here. <laughs> a, a more scary Sanctum Sanctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we got yeah. to see the return of therapy sessions, too, with Yay. a really good conversation between Dr. Stardman and Mark, where she actually gets a little bit more characterization of herself, you know, where she's like, hey, you know, I know I choose to be a therapist for superheroes. I know that's going to make me target. I was like, in the V Battalion. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I was in the V Battalion. I can take care of myself. So what do we feel about the return of therapy? Because we haven't had it for the last few issues the sessions and you know where dr sternman is after her kidnapping i I kind of i like it i really like it because i think if they had just taken dr sternman out of the comic i would have been like but mark isn't continuing his journey to try and heal and deal with himself it would have kind of stunted his actual like kind of forward momentum as a character who is dealing with his trauma instead of just going i'm going to make this pain my own and i will bring vengeance with it like you know that it's like okay you know what Batman needs I mean Moon Knight needs therapy and he's actually getting it so I I appreciate it and I love her and I like the conversation where it's about you know Moon Knight feeling some sort of survivor's guilt like for himself and Soldier in a way like it's his fault that Soldier got vamped 
but uh but sometimes you know shit happens that we can't control and sometimes we can't we have to accept other people's choices and i like that dr sturman is you know helping moon knight realize this that he can't save everybody and sometimes people choose to sacrifice themselves too he doesn't have a single license to you know save people people can save themselves too yeah i completely agree he often feels like he has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence or the illegitimate use of violence so to speak yes because he's the white knight and that's part of why i'm loving this therapy session is because he has very much a, a white knight complex or a savior complex when it comes to like violence and shit yeah that, that's the so, word yeah. it's not survivor's guilt but savior's complex yeah that's that's true part of it was he didn't want to die but it very quickly evolved into the i must be the savior of like this 10 square blocks i'm gonna micromanage this even more than daredevil does like i got this shit like <laughs> it's great that he's now kind of working through a lot of that and that he has a therapist who's who's point blank calling him this shit to his face like she's she doesn't uh any diagnoses and she doesn't like edit you know what she's gonna say she's yeah. very much his therapist but she's also giving him a lot of just straightforward truth and something that uh, I appreciate about that, the last thing you just said, Raven, is that for Dr. Sturman, she knows that she's going to be a target just because she knows who superheroes are. There's probably likely superheroes who had revealed themselves to her, but it's also that she has to be confident enough in herself to call superheroes out on their shit. And like this page is, is really an encapsulation of that. Like you have to be strong enough to tell Iron Man to go fuck yourself. Or you gotta, you gotta be <laughs> like he would show up to therapy. Yeah, <laughs> I would rather build that uh, three billion dollar robot that tells him, "Yeah, you're okay," instead of going to therapy. <laughs> yeah, solves all of his problems with suits of armor. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, you're not even wrong. But yeah, but you get what I'm saying, right? Is that she's yeah. both confident against supervillains and superheroes. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, agree. And then so as we're wrapping this issue up, the scene between Reese and Tigra furthered Reese's characterization. It really kind of gave any fans that were upset about Tigra's deception a chance to like say, hey, cool, you know, she knows what she did. She's going to make up for it. I am looking forward to see where Soldier is a vampire is going to go. I know he's going to go through some rough spots and I just can't wait to see what the tutor brings because this is some crazy, crazy looking art that's going to be set up. And also I, I want to see that um, tete-a-tete with the personalities. Nice. Uh, I want to be slightly critical. I know I'm not usually very critical of Moon Knight, but I want to be slightly critical here. I think there's a too many cooks in the kitchen thing going on with the splash page where uh, Moon Knight kills the vampire by kicking him into the sun. It's one of the coolest sequences in the book and like it's cruel, it's heartless, and it's kind of badass. It's drawn extremely well, like the line work is great of the vampire burning in the sun and dying and you know, the colors are always something I really appreciate about this, but something about the combination of the really busy and angular and stylized line work paired with all of the colors being really similar to each other because of the fire everywhere in that panel the extreme close-up of him burning and then in combination with something that i think is unfortunate in a lot of lettering which is when you have a plain white outline of a of a sound effect over the entire thing over an already busy line work it jumbles my eyes so bad that i had to like look at this page for a really long time to actually figure out what was happening in every part of it but i want to lead that into saying that it did result in one of my favorite sound effects of of this particular issue which was the vampire's death scream of the oh. ah! 
Uh, that is beautiful. In that bloody yellow. But like, yeah, I don't know. Something about that page is just like all of the elements of it work really well. But when put together and especially with that outlined foosh slapped over it, it just it derailed my eyes. I had such a such trouble reading that page. And that it, may have just been me. It took me till now to even figure out that that was a close up of the face and not just the whole body. Like, yeah. This was a problem in the last issue, too, where you remember that great splash page with Moon Knight on one side and Zodiac on the other side? Yeah. And like everyone going mm-hmm. fight. Mm-hmm. We had issues following the fire, the flamethrower in that page too. Yes, okay. agreed. So- I agree with you. Every now and again, there'll be just a little too much going on panel and it makes it just hard to kind of digest everything that's going on. So yeah, it, but it's so hard to actually find something to yeah. It was Wait, it was yeah. nice seeing Sabatini back again. As much as I oh love God, Capuccio, yeah. Sabatini always does a really oh. good villain. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I I definitely agree with you. And like I I really enjoyed this whole book, and I actually enjoyed this Taskmaster because usually yeah, Taskmaster is just right. He's just just arrogant. It's over the top. He's just always so self confident. I loved seeing Taskmaster like visibly and understandably scared and unwilling to step in front of said bullet as it were because he's like this dude literally crashed a helicopter into a building to get at me that line i was like i oh oh no actually no that that track and it like at first it seems almost almost callous to say that kind of thing but if you really think about moon knight and how aggressive he can be when it comes to hunting somebody down it's not hyperbole it's not hyperbolic in nature when he says yeah that was my personal 9-11 no he's not kidding Moon Knight no, will just, end he you. Yeah. He was in a building and Moon Knight flew an aircraft through it to get to him. Yeah. <laughs> literally. Literally. It's, it's an extreme of Moon Knight, but it's also something I can absolutely see happening. To Moon Knight, he's like, no, you used to be a mercenary just like me. Now, now you're worse. The upcoming number 14, and you have Mr. Knight, Moon Knight, uh, Stephen Grant, Jake Lockley, Mark Spector. It's like you have all the pieces of them there, and I can't wait to see it. And is that Mark Spector aiming his gun at? Jake Lockley. It looks like he is, and it looks like he's crying, like he's sad. <laughs> yeah. Like he's crying. He's got. He's gonna have to shoot him, right? Yeah. Also, I like that he's got some kind of like fohawk going on. Yeah. It was a good, you know, change of pace. You know, setting up the new status quo where everyone's at before this next arc, which kind of feels like a sort of Daredevil turf war kind of thing, like we yeah. saw in Devil's Reign just a couple months ago, but like supernatural with the vampires against uh, the Midnight Mission, and I think that's gonna be very exciting and yeah i'm just very glad that this book is continuing past issue number 12 and hopefully it gets past number 24 as well <laughs>